Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. It was sound effects like this from old time radio programs that got today's guest interested in audio production as a blind youth. Today, he's a professional musician. We'll speak with Joey Stuckey, an award-winning blind guitarist, songwriter, singer, composer, producer, radio and television personality, music columnist, educator, and sound engineer. We'll talk with Joey about his life journey and the keys to his success. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Joey Stuckey. You know, my dad's always told me, uh, you know, son, if you love what you do, it'll never be work. I mean, that's great. If something is fun like that, you're really bound to become good at it and continue doing it. As you will hear in the rest of the show, Joey certainly enjoys what he's doing, and it really comes through. Well, as you know, that wasn't our usual breaker tune. That was Oceanside, a tune that Joey Stuckey composed, performed, and produced. So let's start by meeting Joey. Hi, I'm Joey Stuckey, and I have been blind since about the age of two. I uh, overcame a brain tumor that everybody thought would uh, be the end of me, and I have gone on to live the life that I've wanted to live. And uh, I make my living in music. I've, I've only made a living in music and audio recording, and that's the only job I've ever had. And you are a man of many hats. Besides some of the music you play and compose, you're also a producer. I understand you're a radio celebrity. Anything else we missed there? Oh, well, one of the things I'm most proud of is uh, I'm the official music ambassador of my hometown, which is Macon, Georgia. And Macon's the home of a number of esteemed artists, uh, including Little Richard, Otis Redding, uh, Jason Aldean, you know, just, just a lot of really amazing talents from this area. I don't know what it is about this area, but there's just so much talent. It's just one of the craziest things I've ever seen. But we absolutely have the same caliber of talent as a New York or, or an L.A. or a Nashville. But uh, the thing that's missing and one of the things that I work on uh, is to try and bring more musical infrastructure to our hometown and just more awareness. But in the seventies, uh, we were the, you know, the capital of Southern rock. So. Well, that is great. And it's certainly appropriate to have you there. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love this place and I love the people. And, and as a producer, as you mentioned, as a recording engineer and producer, um, I mean, I, I record a lot of people in this area and uh, it, it's just incredible. I mean, you know, we, everybody knows Atlanta's got a lot of, wonderful talent uh it's a great place for for hip-hop and r&b and of course athens was with alternative rock you know capital uh, for a while with with bands like rem and, and b52s uh but th this this naked area just has such a plethora of talent and styles and genres although of course the southern rock theme is and and r&b is pretty powerful when you have otis redding and from this area and you have the almond brothers made their home here for a long time uh, so, the, you know, you, that tradition runs pretty deep, but it's, it's an incredible place to live and work. Well, that sounds really nice. 
Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Underwriting pairs the impact of targeted marketing with the integrity of community goodwill. Learn more by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is Joey Stuckey's musical journey, first as a student and then as a performer, composer, producer, educator, and so forth. So as we mentioned in the introduction, you're a man of many hats and many talents and many contributions. And so I guess we'd like to take our listeners through a journey of your life from when you started out as a blind youth to see how you got to where you are now. So when were you first interested in music? How did that come about? Well, that's a great question. You know, it's an interesting journey because the first 13, 14 years of my life were really focused on survival. Um, so the brain tumor took my sight, which is the most obvious sort of impairment. But uh, I also have a metal hip and a metal shoulder. So I have some some bone uh, density issues. Um, I, I can't smell either, which, <laughs> which, by the way, is how I tricked my wife into marriage. I told her that she'd always look and smell perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, I'll take it. And which, you know, I think that's a reasonable uh, thing. I think she did. I think she did a good job of taking that offer. Hey, whatever works. <laughs> oh, it, well, yeah. And we'll be married 17 years this June. So it worked out pretty well for me. But, um, you know, th- those thirst, I mean, music was always a big part of my life. My grandfather basically was a, was a minister. So my mom was, uh, very steeped in what we'd call in, in, in school, we'd call it sacred music, but, you know, basically hymnals and, and spirituals and things of that nature. And she also loved opera. And my dad had played in bands when he was young and, and loved traditional country music, things like, you know, Hank Williams and Loretta Lynn and, and things, Eddie Arnold and, and the Statler brothers and those, those kind of things. So music was always in our household. And it was always a source of comfort and solace to me. But, you know, until I reached the age of around 15, I had no real thoughts of playing it or making it a vocation. So you were just having fun with the family and playing around the living room and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I really didn't. I didn't. I sang with my with my mom and dad, you know, just as as families will do. But I didn't I didn't really pick the guitar up until I was around 16, 17 years old. How and when did you get more serious about playing the guitar and other facets of music and audio? The real watershed moment that changed me from, uh, you know, a sick kid into this audio obsessed, uh, you know, future musician and producer is when I was 13, I got pneumonia and it was really, really bad. And the medicine they gave me to to help me breathe uh, ended up making me start hemorrhaging blood. Ooh. And uh, it was it was very dicey. <laughs> it was it was bad. It was it was just it was, you know, it was one of those things we weren't sure if I was going to make it. And then I had to recover at home for about, oh, I think it was about four months. So during that time, I discovered uh, public radio and the one of the DJs at the public radio station from midnight to 3 a.m. every Saturday night played old time radio shows. And when I heard like the Lone Ranger and, and all these classic, you know, the shadow and uh, X minus one and all these classic radio dramas from the the forties, fifties, sixties, before, you know, TV was, was all encompassing and radio became more of a music platform. Um, I was just amazed because I thought, 
man, I, I could do this. I could, you know, the stories are, are the same kind of stories you watch today in a film or, or TV or whatever, except that instead of being driven by visual components, they were driven by dialogue, music, and sound effects. <laughs> and I thought, man, I could do this. I could create these, what I like to call soundscapes or, or audio landscapes. I could create this stuff. And who better than a blind guy to say whether it sounds realistic or not? Yeah, and what a great medium for a blind person. I mean, back then, those shows were very creative. Yes. And you could just close your eyes even if you were sighted and imagine what was going on around you. Sort of like reading a book. Absolutely. It really is. I've heard several different companies use like theater of the mind and stuff like that when they describe radio shows. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, there's some modern people still doing radio shows. You know, the BBC and CBC uh, radio is still very vibrant there, and they still do radio dramas and radio plays and there's a great company called Graphic Audio that does what I would call a radio play or, or a radio drama. So as a teenager, when you said to yourself, boy, I can do this, what were you thinking? Were you thinking of sitting down with a tape recorder and making sound effects and putting on your own personal little plays or what? That's exactly what I was thinking. And that's what I did. My parents took me to Radio Shack and I bought microphones and mixers and cables and and basically, I used the scientific method. Hey, what happens if I do this? <laughs> you know, and uh, it was great. I assume that in the process, you learned how to connect all of these various devices to one another and deal with the cables and all of that. Yeah, well, you know, I got lucky uh, is what happened because I, never having met a stranger, called up the DJ that had been playing those radio dramas and said, Hey, you've changed my life. I'm a 13 year old kid. I'm like, man, this, this thing saved my life. This is, this is how I get through the week of like, you know, feeling sick and having to stay in the room and just being ill. And I, I wait for your show, you know? And so he actually came over, his name's Rob Thomas and I'll never forget him. And he actually came over and visited me and taught me what he knew about sound and got me going. And then I, as I say, I've already, I always experimented some, but, um, then he taught me what he knew, and that, that set me on the right path. So were you writing the scripts in addition to putting in the sound effects and all the spoken words and all, or did you have some cooperation on this? There's a dual answer there. My gift is improvisation. So a lot of times what I would do is I would improvise some kind of dialogue and then go back and create the soundscapes around what I'd improvise. Later in life, I did you know, actually write the, the scripts and stuff like that when I was, you know, 16, 17 years old. Mm -hmm. um, then I would also go back. I had two tape machines. And so we'd play back what we'd recorded on one. And then I would add in some sound effects, you know, live as the tape was going by on another. Wow. That's the old fashioned way of doing multi-track recording. <laughs> actually two recorders. Yeah. Wow. It was a blast. But, but the only drawback to that old system was, um, there was never a standard cassette tape uh, rotation speed. And so uh, what would happen is there was a slight difference between one machine and the other. So if you did music on one and played it to another, <laughs> sometimes the music would change keys on you. Right. You're out of tune all of a sudden. Yeah. 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 So you eventually became really interested in this and very good at it as a teenager, and eventually you must have transitioned into music. How did that all happen? Well, what happened was I got my first job at around age 15 as a sound technician for the local planetarium. 
And there were other people there. I was the, one of the youngest people there, but there was uh, there were other people there, uh, roughly my age, you know, twenty and, and so. And uh, they said, "Hey, we we hear you have, got some recording equipment at your house. Can we can we come record our band's demo?" And I was like, "Oh, sure, you know." So when the first Garage Band came in to record, and they recorded a song because I was a, a, as I said a radio junkie. So they recorded some song I didn't know. And I said, oh, who wrote that? They're like, oh, well, we did. That's one of our original songs. And that was kind of that other light bulb that went off for me, that other watershed moment where I realized, hey, I can do that. And um, I have a passion for it. And it's the vehicle through which I want to tell my story. And that is when the musicianship, you know, light, you know, went off. And I, I played around with the keyboard and some stuff like that. But eventually as I say, between 17, around 17 years old, went and got some guitar lessons and started really learning what I was doing. Oh, and this connection basically happened because you happened to have the equipment because of the work you were doing in soundscaping. That's exactly right. Yeah. Great. And just to tie the whole thing together, I got that planetarium job because that DJ friend of mine, Rob Thomas, was actually talking to his friend who was the head of the planetarium. And his friend was complaining about how terrible their sound system was. And he said, well, I know this kid that's pretty sharp. You should give him a call. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Great. So it's, it's that synchronicity, man. You know, it, it really, you just never know what blessing is going to come out of meeting somebody. You just never have any idea. True. As a blind individual, how did you learn music? I assume as a musician, you learned to have good ears. But when you're first learning, what was your method of learning music? You couldn't read music easily, I suppose. Well, that's true. So what happened was the guitar teacher that I had was uh, he's, his name is Terry Cantwell, and he's uh, still a dear friend. He told my mom, he said, I've never taught a blind student before, but I know that I can find a way. And uh, I love that attitude. And it's one that I that I have, too. Yeah, I'm sure I can do it. Let me figure out how I can do it. Actually, the first thing he did. So he took a box of sand and drew in it with a stylus. And he said, I know that you can't see these notes to read them on the page, but I want you to know what they look like. So he drew the treble clef and the quarter note and the eighth note and, you know, showed me what it was like to read music and then taught me how to read music. Okay, if there's a note on this line, it means this. And if there's a, this symbol on this line, it means that. And so the only sort of difficulty was the fact that I couldn't see to read the music, but intellectually, I understood it. Oh, so you knew something about the spacing of the notes and the order of the notes to get in your head. Right. And then he trained me extremely well in musical theory, the intellectual practice, what notes belong together and why and what the functions of the chords are. Now, we tried to learn Braille music, but there was nobody for several hundred miles that taught it. So we eventually gave up on that. And uh, I never learned Braille music. And then I did go to um, school for music uh, and, you know, I just orally dictated things to the professor. So that's how we compensated for that. It's just a, a very deep understanding of the, the actual workings of music. And honestly, I mean, at its heart, music is math. And I still, you know, use those tools. Say, I can teach my students how to read music. I just can't see it. <laughs> So it sounds like you were very fortunate to run into people who were creative enough, like your guitar teacher, to say, 
we can do this as opposed to giving up and then also people at music school that were willing to work in a different paradigm with you. Yeah, and, and it wasn't always that way. There were certainly, there were lots of people that said, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't see. And, you know, look, there are things that I can't do. It would be crazy for me to think that I can do everything that a sighted person can do. But there are still many, many things that I can do as long as you're willing to, you know, think outside the box. And I have been super blessed to find those people. And I've had to fight for some of the opportunities as well. I mean, I've had to, I've had to say, you know, Hey, look, I can do this. Um, and you know, you don't have to believe if you don't want to, but, uh, I can do it and you're going to let me try. <laughs> you know. Well, and I find that as a blind individual also. And that's one of the reasons I think now that I'm a professor in my own right at two universities here in my hometown. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I value that work is because I know what it's like to have to learn differently. So I'll find a way to reach my students, whatever it takes. I know that I can, and, I've, and I know what it's like to be frustrated by people thinking that you can't learn something because you have a different need. You talked about being a professor at two universities in and around Macon, Georgia. What universities and what department? Well, uh, you won't be surprised to know that I'm in the music department. And um, I'm working at Mercer University and also Middle Georgia State University. And Mercer is my alma mater. And so uh, I, I'm very pleased to be the professor of music technology for both those schools. So I assume as a professor and as a music producer, a lot of your work happens in pretty fixed environments like a classroom or in the studio. But as a performing musician, I assume you're often on the road at different venues. How does that work being blind in terms of the logistics, new hotels, getting on and off stage? That's a pretty fun question, actually. Yeah, so my first thought when I got into this business was how can I minimize the real big challenge for any blind person, which is transportation? How can I minimize that impact on my life? And so what I said was, gosh, you know, it'd be great for people to have a reason to come to me. And so that was the idea that, that said, well, I should make this, this studio thing my career. But uh, today, uh, you know, I do have to sort of bum a ride. You know, I have to arrange... Uh, transportation with either a bandmate uh, or my wife or some other friend or relative uh, and just get where I need to go. Um, that is the hardest part. But when we're on tour, it's actually easier because there's a defined arc of the tour, you know, from this date to this date. And you, you already have set aside and planned how to get from point A to point B. Um, we have a nice van and a nice trailer. And what we do is we use a hub and spoke method of touring. So what we'll do is we'll find a central point that is sort of equidistance between all of the shows that we have in a given area. And we'll stay in that one location and drive from there to the venue. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So what that does is that allows us to plan our drive time. That allows us to switch up drivers, except for me, of course. Um, and, uh, and it allows me to stay in the same hotel room so that I don't have to relearn a new place every single night. So basically on the road, then you're basically working and you're with your bandmates. So you always have some kind of assistance in these new venues. Yeah, absolutely. 
basically the, the guys get me off stage. I, I have gotten impatient before and said, I can get off stage. It's only a step. I mean, you know, and then like tore all the ligaments, one of my feet doing something stupid like that. But uh, I, after that, I said, okay, I'll be patient. Just wait till they get me off. But they basically get me off like pretty much first thing. And then I sit there and talk to people and sign autographs and sell merch and whatever while they pack up the gear and we get ready to move on. So it, it works really well. Um, and the thing is, I am very careful about who I work with. And these guys are family and we have a high amount of love and respect and trust in one another. So, you know, it's good. Now, my wife travels with me, you know, as much as she possibly can, uh, which is almost all the time. Is there anything we missed? Well, you know, I, I mean, you've got a pretty good groove on what I've been doing. I think the biggest challenge, um, the only thing that we haven't talked about really as far as navigation through the tours and things of that nature is um, just some of the challenge of, uh, you know, finding the right places and the right times and, and, and the sort of the struggle of, of, uh, of just being a, a good musician in general. But I don't know that that's cogent to the, to the podcast, but. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. It's, it's like any other business, right? There are all those details that people think, oh, I could play the guitar or I could cook if I want to open a restaurant. And then there's all those details in the back that are really almost the essence of the job. It, it, is, it is much more complicated than it seems. I'll, I'll tell you the biggest thing that troubles me and the reason that I am so passionate about education and, and good education, you know, um, is, is the fact that someone writes a song and it may be a great song. Um, and then from learning a few chords on the guitar and writing one song, they think that tomorrow, you know, there'll be international celebrities. Um, and that's just not a real reasonable idea. Uh, the, there are people that talk about this idea of overnight sensation. Oh, this guy just came out of nowhere. And, and my, my answer is always, it's an overnight sensation that was 20 years in the making. Yeah. It's a lot of hard work, isn't it? <laughs> A lot of overnights. Yeah. And, and, you know, the thing is, like, it's such a weird business because with the advent of the Internet, we've had several good things happen and several bad things happen. So it's almost the Wild West, once again, in regard to to music and, and attracting fans. The great thing about the Internet is you can share your music with everybody all over the world. The bad thing is everybody else is doing the same thing, and it's hard to see the forest for the trees. So once again, live performances have become really you know, a critical staple in getting a fan base. Now, once you have that fan base, the internet is highly useful because you can do direct to fan marketing and literally ask your fans, Hey, what is it that you want from me? Would you like a new album? Do you want a new t-shirt? Do you want to, you know, do you guys want us to do vinyl or do you want CDs or you just want to do digital downloads? You know, there's wonderful opportunity there, but you still have to, in this day and age, you really do have to get in a van and, 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 and drive up and down, and play wherever you can and making sure the venue is the appropriate place for your fan base. Uh, that's, that's what a lot of guys don't get. And, and just really build that fan base, you know, uh, you know, 20, 30 people at a time. Well, that's great advice for people who are aspiring professional musicians. Thanks. Yeah, and please understand that I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm just saying, understand it's going to be a lot of work and, it, and it's, it's totally worth it. But uh, if you think it's going to happen overnight, that's, there's a rude awakening there. One song at a time. With minor change. 
That was also not our normal breaker tune. That was Joey Stuckey and the Shadow Bandits performing one song at a time. Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about Joey and his music and how to contact him directly. So if people want to find out more about you, Joey, I assume you have a website. Can you give them some of that information? I have a plethora of websites, yes. The best one is joeystuckey.com, J-O-E-Y-S-T-U-C-K-E-Y.com. That is my main sort of catch-all site that has all kinds of good stuff. And I recommend, if you've got the time and interest, to definitely check out what we call the Fan Zone, which we've worked hard to craft a good place for you to come and learn about the music I'm putting out and what I'm doing and who I am. And there's a lot of opportunities for you to get some free music and uh, to find out where I'm playing and things like that in the fan zone. But the whole website has, you know, videos and audio and, and pictures and all kind of stuff. And uh, if you're a sighted person and you can go through and check out some pictures, there's some pretty cool pictures on there with a number of celebrities and uh, some, some fun. I have what I call my adventures pictures, which has me, for example, being kissed in the face by a sea lion. Uh, <laughs> Yum. Yeah, sounds great. <laughs> so it was, it was a very fun experience. So it has all kinds of fun stuff like that. There's a picture of me getting a hold of baby penguin, um, which actually happened because I was blind. I had, I was performing at an aquarium and I said, you know, every time I come here, your penguin exhibits closed. And I really would love to get a chance to at least hear them squeaking around or something. I said, but you know, I don't know how accessible it'd be anyway, since I, I couldn't touch them and they're, you know, kind of far from the ice. And um, she came back about an hour later and said, come with me and just didn't say anything else. I was like, okay. And so they took me back in the back and to the animal husbandry section of the aquarium and put a baby penguin in my arms. Let me hold him. Wow. It was amazing. And, and I was like, okay. And then the guys, my family were like, where'd you go? I was like, I went to hold a baby penguin. Like I want to do it. I was like, well, when you're blind, you can hold one too. (laughs) (laughs) So I think the website's pretty fun. And then if you're more interested in the professional aspect of recording and that sort of thing, uh, you can go to my Shadow Sound Studio website, which is just www.shadowsoundstudio.com. But I love to interact with people and meet new friends and answer questions about blindness, especially if you're going through that and it's something new to you or you haven't had a chance to, you know, you're worrying, wondering about how, how do I do certain things. I'm always glad to lend any advice that I can. So you can always find me on uh, Instagram or Twitter. It's just at jstuckymusic. And uh, then uh, I also have a Facebook page, which, of course, is Facebook.com slash Joey Stuckey Music. So there's a lot of good ways to connect. Well, terrific. There's a lot of great information there. And you're a real model for how to be a successful musician who's having a lot of fun and a lot of nice impact in the world. I appreciate you saying that because that means the most to me. And as usual, if you missed any of that contact information, you'll find it in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. And just to remind people, we're still soliciting input from our listeners for some positive experiences that may have come out of being socially isolated at home during this COVID-19 pandemic. You'll find instructions for submitting a short audio to us for inclusion in the show at our website. 
That's it for show number 2026. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about why it's a good idea to see a low vision specialist. Ophthalmologists are trained in treating medical conditions associated with the eye and should always be consulted if you're experiencing vision loss. But what about getting around in daily life? We'll talk with Neelam Patel, a low vision specialist, about the array of services and resources available of which you may not have been told. So catch you next week if you're interested in hearing some interesting tips. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.